When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. All right, you guys, whoever took my boots, I want them back. I got a boot for you, Stan. Yeah. Right up your ass. <laughs> hey, Mike. <laughs> hey, Mike, let me borrow your spares, huh? Your extra pair? No, Stan. No? What do you mean, no? Just what I said, no. No means no. Some fucking friend. You're some fucking friend, you know that? You gotta learn, Stanley. Every time you come up here, you got your goddamn head up your ass. Maybe he likes the view from up there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Every time he comes up, he's got no knife, he's got no jacket, he's got no pants, he's got no boots. Always got that stupid gun he carries around, like John Wayne. That ain't gonna help you. Oh, what the hell, Mike? Give him the boots. No way. I ain't giving him no boots. No more. No more. That's it. You're a fucking bastard. You know that? Huh? Stanley, see this? This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own. I fixed you up a million times. I fixed him up a million times. I don't know how many times I must have fixed him up with girls. And nothing ever happened. Zero. Hey, you know your trouble, Mike, huh? Nobody ever knows what the fuck you're talking about, huh? This is this. What the hell is that supposed to mean? This is this. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. Today, we know we're going to go longer than 15 minutes. We have to because of what movie we're doing today, which is what, Mike? The Deer Hunter. My, 1978, Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter, a terrific, terrific movie. And I just want to plug a book I just read that I was telling you about, Mike. Charles Elton has a book about Michael Cimino. It's a biography. You can go on the New Books Network and hear a great interview about it. But it's about Michael Cimino making The Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate. And I, anyone listening, I strongly recommend it. It's got great stuff on The Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate and what happened to Cimino afterwards. Um, but today we're going to do the movie that kind of put him on the map. In 1978. In part one, we always talk about our overall take on the film. Mike and I had both seen this film plenty of times, but we've never talked about it until now. So Mike, overall, what did you take from The Deer Hunter this time? I find something really interesting about The Deer Hunter, which is that it has a kind of defiant attitude towards interpretation. It has a very slick exterior. Obviously, if you've watched it, it's absolutely gut-wrenching. Nobody leaves The Deer Hunter with a smile. It's just a kind of transformative experience to watch it. But what it really avoids 
is any one-to-one equal sign between symbols and reality. In fact, it tries to mimic or be its own reality. And I think that that's why it resists some kind of symbolic interpretation. Whereas I I think other movies even verge on the almost allegorical. This movie rejects all of that. It rejects even ideas about film structure. Obviously, it rejects pat ideas about film runtime, right? And, And what it advertised itself to be And the experience of people sitting through the first hour, I think, is very jarring. But it has a lot to do with what I'm talking about, which is just to watch people go through an experience until that becomes experiential for the audience. And you feel like you've gone through what they've gone through. But there's it all it it resists the symbolic and it insists on itself being literal in some way that it strikes me that not a lot of other movies do, certainly not that, that I've watched. Yeah, because if somebody said to you, oh, I heard about this movie, what's it about? I mean, your shorthand answer would be, oh, it's about Vietnam. It's about these these guys that go to Vietnam, what happens? But then that person puts the movie on and the first hour is the wedding. And there's, wait, I thought this was, I thought this was about Vietnam, right? And then the Vietnam section is actually relatively short compared to the whole film, right? So Chimino kind of, and I love what you said about how it resists those kind of like one-to-one, sim- like what is the Deer a symbol of? What does it mean? This is this. And we'll certainly talk about that when they sing God Bless America, because that's, a, that, that I think is exactly what you talked about there. Yeah. So these things are laden with symbolic meaning. But it's about the way that symbols operate in people's lives. Right. But not that they are symbols for the overarching structure of the film. Right. We have symbols in our own lives. You you know, your life and my life and all of our listeners' lives are filled with symbols, but they don't always work as neatly as symbols in art. And I think that's what Shimino does here really well, right? Yeah, I I think uh, this isn't a moment, but I'll just use something, which is that uh, everybody packs into uh, Mikey's car. Right. right. He's got and, the best car, and, they say. And that's what that's what Mikey's car. What does Mikey's car mean to them? It means youth. It means adventure. It means friendship. But most importantly, it means safety. But it doesn't operate as a symbol of safety in the film. That's how the symbol appears to the characters. And that's kind of a reversal of the symbolic meaning that that films usually offer to audiences, which is kind of like if you're climbing a wall, it's what you grab onto. Right. So there's very little to grab onto which I think creates for the audience the uncomfortable feeling that they're being swept away or that something is happening to them. Even if you're a very experienced viewer, you can't lean on that experience to view this movie. Right. It's not that Mikey's car is not Rosebud. Even though right. Orson Welles makes fun of the, the whole idea of the sled being a symbol, and we all know that the sled, you know, saying the sled was a symbol of Charles Foster Kane's youth doesn't do justice to the movie. And Orson Welles said that was just a big joke to hang the narrative on. But it's that same kind of idea. Those guys getting into Mikey's car don't say, I feel very safe here. This is a symbol of our lives in Claritin. It's what it means to the people that are embedded in the reality of this movie, but not actual reality. I know that you love that book, The Good Soldier. Very much. And the first sentence, isn't the first sentence like, this is the saddest story I've ever heard? Yes. This is, The Deer Hunter is maybe the saddest film I've ever seen. And I say that not to be not to be cute or to use a, a lame adjective. Like, oh, it's kind of sad. Like, this film is so, it's so sorrowful and it's so haunting and it's so disturbing that you're right. You go through this experience when it's over. I, I, because I think, again, that symbolism in films is meant to be a kind of filter, right? You right. can't drink ground. So what you, but what you make is a palatable coffee that you sip. And that's how movies are supposed to be experienced. And that's, that's not what you get in this film. You have very little armor based on your past experiences of watching movies to defend yourself. 
Yeah, I told my son to watch it. He'd never seen it. And he said, okay, I'll watch it. And I said, listen, here's the only thing I'm going to tell you. Trust the movie. You're going to wonder in the first hour what's going on, but you got to trust the movie because that's all worth it. So my overall thing, it's funny what you mentioned about, about Mikey's car, because I thought to myself, you know, this is what I wanted to talk about overall is that that the fictional town of Clareton, where this happens in Pennsylvania, the thing that's so good in this film is how it establishes what these guys' lives are like and their values and their assumptions. They work in these dark satanic mills. In the beginning, I couldn't stop thinking of William Blake. But how do you get through that, right? You get through that with, with camaraderie and they assume that things aren't going to change. And the whole first hour, think of how many examples there are of their like boyish innocence, how much they're like kids, right? Like, first of all, they can't stop touching each other. They keep the fake fighting like middle schoolers, right? You said Mikey's car when he races the truck, right? That's something that like teenagers would do, right? When they play pool and Steven's mother comes for him and starts yelling at him like that. Calls him bums. Yeah, calls him bums. That's hilarious, right? There's the bit with the car after John goes to take a pee and they keep moving the car. That's hilarious, right? He dips the Twinkie in the mustard. He throws the food, you know, like all those things. So I think what's great is that you get a sense that these guys are like little boys. They're led by Michael, but they're still capable of like unbelievable depth because there's that scene where John plays the piano and they all shut up in the bar. And that's like a great, great moment for you as well. And I think what's cool is that 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 camaraderie gives their lives meaning, just like the church does, just like the church rituals, right? There's a structure. It's going to give our life meaning. And it's a movie about a guy, the deer hunter, who has the rules, right? This is this. You know, you get one shot. He won't give John Cazale his boots. Sorry, Stan. He just like, those are the rules, right? He says, remember what he says to Christopher Walken about hunting and why he likes to hunt with them? He says, I love those other guys. They're assholes, but I love them, but I can't hunt with them. Like he tells Nikki, like, you're the guy I can hunt with. And it's about this one guy who's been changed and finds it like all those things that gave him security and all those things that gave life meaning, like they're all different when he gets back. Like we did the best years of our lives. Like he's trying to adjust to that. And I've had a hard it is to make that adjustment. I mean, the this is this moment is exactly what I'm talking about, right? It's It's meaningful. It's not supposed to be meaningful to you as a viewer, A. Whatever this is, this is, is some kind of motto to him that protects him, but it does not protect me as the viewer. And he's saying, literally, this is this, right? So that if you take if you take things, if you take experiences, one at a time, they mean something. And I think that that's why this is such a difficult movie to talk about in the aggregate, because you're trying to put right. it together as some kind of formula, start to finish. What does this mean? What is a wedding? A wedding is a wedding. They're in a cabin. What does this cabin mean? A cabin is a cabin. They're yeah. in a war scene. What does this war scene mean? A war scene is a war scene. And it's the the internal logic of the film is is pushing pushing out at you. But I think that you're exactly right, which is what what is this movie about? It's about a group of guys. It's about whatever's on on screen when it's on screen. And yeah. I think that there's no 4D chess going on here. Right. This is just very good storytelling. What it is, it's emotional care, right? So you say without symbolic meaning, why would I care about these guys? The same reason you care about anybody in your life. It's like you, you've you paid attention to a group of guys for an extended period of time or people or friends that you met. And so you care because the human being is a caring animal. And I think that that's ultimately what this is about. You say, well, why would I watch this as a viewer if there's no symbolic meaning, if I'm not supposed to take anything from it? Because we're human and we go through things. So why don't yeah. you sit and watch someone go through something after you've established a relationship with them, like you said, and then see where you end up. Okay, welcome back. So in part two, of course, we like to talk about the, our key scenes. So Dan, why don't you kick it off? You mentioned earlier how this movie defies our expectations for what a, what a movie should do to us and what it's like to watch a movie. 
And one thing that struck me thinking about this film afterwards is, you know what's missing from this movie that's really shocking that a lesser writer would have included? You know what's missing? Monologues. There are no monologues in this movie, right? Now, this movie is made for monologues. This movie is made for Michael to give a monologue to Meryl Streep at the end or for Christopher Walken to have a monologue about why he's kind of thrown his life away when he finally meets De Niro at the end of the movie, right? And there's none of them. Now, A, that's great because it's kind of cheating to do that. It's to show, not tell. It's the old rule. But again, it's like you ex you expect these things and you don't get them. The most we get from Michael is he says when he comes back and he won't go to his own party, which is just, again, like the best years of our lives, like same kind of, the most he says to Meryl Streep is, I don't know, I feel a lot of distance. I feel far away. And that leads to my moment because I think a similar moment like that is the moment that really made my stomach clench up is when Christopher Watkins in the VA hospital and the guy's going around with the clipboard and he says, um, what are your parents' date of birth? And he just looks at him and and just starts crying. Remember that? And he's like, he's sitting on the on the balcony and he's barely holding it together. And it goes on and on. And that scene goes on so long. And you're like, he can't like he, like Christopher Watkins in a place like beyond words. De Niro can kind of hold it together. Like he can kind of say, I feel very distant. And we kind of get a sense of what he means there. But it's about these guys, both of them are changed. That's why I think when De Niro comes back, he wears his uniform so often in the second half of the movie, because that's a kind of who he is now. He's a different person. And it's about these two people who had to leave all the rules and had to leave all the camaraderie and all the fun. You know, all the king's horses and all the king's men, you know, couldn't put these two guys back together again. It certainly could, couldn't put back Christopher Walken. And De Niro just about gets like duct taped back together. Yeah, I think Nikki's confusion in that moment is what leads him to the, yeah. the Russian roulette competition, which is that life is no different than death. So why right. are you why are you asking me as this phantom what my parents names used to be D does not compute. I don't have that information anymore. Right. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, right? this this state or some other state is no different because I'm not processing this state and that state is unprocessable. So why are you asking me? I was going to say that the great thing about that moment is that, again, like that's the monologue spot. So that's in the creative writing class. Nikki's supposed to deliver a monologue there. And you know what it's supposed to say? It's supposed to say what you just said. It's, he's supposed to say, I can't tell the difference in life or death anymore. That seems very picayune to ask me what my parents' date of birth was. But but Chimino's smart enough to just show it. Just he he like Christopher Walken doesn't have a podcast. He doesn't he doesn't want to talk about it. He can't talk about it. It's beyond language. And I think that's so well done. Yeah. And I so my moment is the mirror image of that, which is whatever's going on with Mikey, he can definitely tell the difference between life and death. And the way that you know that, despite how lost he is, how how distant he feels, his difficulty in connecting with uh, Meryl Streep is that when he finally corners his second deer, he chooses not to kill it. And there's no symbol about the deer. The, the question is, if you're on the receiving end of the trigger, does it matter if it goes off or it doesn't go off? Again, it's it's reducing what would be a complex symbolic language in any other structure down to one question. If I pull this and it goes off, does it matter? And Nikki, after his experience, says, no, it's all the same. And Mikey says, yes, it matters. And so that that moment is used as a rhyming moment to the kind of a, original scene where he finally hunts his deer. His order and structure has been cracked in some way, again, as you said, he cannot articulate it. He can't tell me exactly what it means. But 
we can see that it's been cracked. His his shield is broken, but he's somehow vitally unharmed in a way that Nikki is harmed, right? He can yes. still tell the difference between a hawk and a handsaw. And that's the model of sanity, but that's the most that you get. He right. doesn't say I'm sane because he doesn't even model himself as sane because, of course, later when he sits down across from from Nikki, it's very clear that it does matter if it goes off. But what could bring meaning and sensibility to that is is love. And I don't mean romantic love or Hollywood love. I mean, anti-romantic love. It's it's a love beyond any kind of any kind of sexuality in, inside of it. It's just literally I, I would put myself in place of you in case it went off. And that's why the first hour is so important because you've been living with these people. So when Robert De Niro picks up the gun and says, is this what you want? Is this what you want? And he says, I, he's appealing to that sense of love. And he says, I love you. And it's not some like cheap, like you said before, like Hollywood kind of like bromance. Like it's like love is the only thing that's going to make any of this mean anything because the world is full of Russian roulette. You might as well have a gun pointed at you every, like the world gives us horrifying examples in the news every day of where you we're basically playing Russian roulette all the time. Right. And then, so how do you, how do you escape that? How do you, how do you go forward in a world where you can die at any second? Well, the answer is like love. The answer is meaning. The answer is this is this it's having a code. It's believing in something. Right. And, and then, you know, Christopher Walken's like, well, I don't, I don't believe in that anymore. And I don't, I don't think that anymore. And De Niro was trying to pull him back. Right. It's, it's, and it's the difference between some kind of armchair nihilism. Imagine if they got Nikki right. back and he just refused to work or refused to drink or refused to do whatever. That's not, that's, that's different. Not doing anything is different than doing something, which is nothing, which is to point a maybe loaded gun at your head on a regular basis. And to say, I, I truly don't care, but right what Mikey's doing when he sits down is he reinjects consequences into the scene. And he says, let's see if, if I right, the symbolic value in the structure is the characters themselves for one another, which makes it, it, which makes it too hard and too complicated to track. It might as well be nothing. Right. But he says, the thing that you value the most is about to disappear. If it's I me. pull this and it goes off, right. right? Me. Now does it matter? And that's why Christopher Walken dies. Like, think about it. Like, why does why does Christopher Walken die? like? How come? Well, the movie would be so, it would cheapen the movie if he actually took him out, like, and walked him out of a, out, out of the bar. Like, that would be sentimental, right? But because I think it's that, like, you know, what even even Michael's best efforts aren't enough to bring this guy back. There's something going on between the two of them, which their love for each other is like is you know to quote the Bible is like passing the love of women, right? That. It, <laughs> typical Hollywood structure tells you that the two of them should be together in war and one of them should run away back to Merrill Street. Right. And again, there's kind of an inverted logic going on here where he's got the woman, he's got the job, he's got the uniform, he's got what they all wanted on the battlefield, which is to make it home in one piece. But that one piece is not suitable for the place that he's returned. Right. So he's got to go back and fix it, right? So he he leaves on his little love jaunt Right. To go find Nikki while the whole structure is collapsing around them because they're about to be invaded. Right. And he he, he is looking for the last chopper out of Nam. Welcome back, everybody. In the last segment, we always talk about the title or the ending. So, Mike, what do you got? I don't have a lot on the title. I think that there's something going on where again, there, there's just got to be some structure for Mikey before he goes. He, he, is he is the embodiment of high seriousness. He's goofing around. Again, he is the deer hunter. Literally, this 
is this. It's like, wh- who's right. the movie about? Right. You could pick any right. sort of characteristic of himself. Of course, the interesting thing is to elevate your sport and a pastime to a matter of life and death, then to be involved in a matter of life and death, and then to no longer get the same feeling of dramatic structure from the thing that you've done, right? Because his deer hunting, not to be overly punny about it, is almost liturgical, right? It's the people's work. It's what you, right? It's what you do, which is why that the two things match so well in the earlier segment of the film. They're either deer hunting or they're at church. So I want to talk about another moment, which is literal and symbolic. Many critics really did not like the ending of this movie, although I it depends who you ask, but Dan, what do you what do you make of that whole scene? Stephen's mother earlier in the movie is talking to the priest. Remember before the wedding, and she says, "I don't understand anything anymore. I understand nothing. Why is Stephen going to do this?" And this whole movie is about that emotion, about people not understanding why people do things, and that's you know Michael's trying to understand what why Nikki is doing this, and they're all trying to understand each other as we try to understand them. And I think the ending is terrific because you can say that Michael Cimino is being ironic and smart-assed and, and look at look at what these people are doing and that when, when Meryl Streep starts singing it and they all start singing it, that they're all doing it in a spirit of irony. You could also say, no, they're doing it because they really do believe it. And that if, if you don't believe in this, if you don't believe in, in the sentiment of that song, then this really was for nothing. Then this, th- then it's the most, it's the most nihilistic, empty experience to be a human being. And I think that the movie like kind of almost has it both ways. I think that um, I think in that scene, in that in that moment when they're in the bar and they sing it, that is a moment of comfort, and a viewer can say, "Oh, that's a big myth." But if it is a myth, it's a necessary one because those myths and those beliefs and those values can get you through trauma. So I think that I don't think those people at that lunch after the funeral are being are writing op-ed pieces about Vietnam. Is this meant to be symbolic on the level of the film or is this meant to be symbolic on the level of the characters? You might as well ask. You might as well ask, well, what are they doing shots for then? Right. But that's a well-known symbol. They're doing shots because they're saying, when I drink this in some way, though you are dead, you are also drinking this. I am drinking this for you. That's something that we all understand as yep. humans, but it's not a symbol that is resonating on the level of the film. It's resonating on the level of the character. And Chimino, in, this, in the same way, that the song is exactly like the shots. The song has the same symbolic weight and structure as the shots. The only thing that you could say about it is it's a kind of rhyming moment to when they're all singing the song that's on the radio. Yeah. But again, yeah. the the... The point is, just like a shot, is like if we all do this together, then somehow you've taken a sip in another world, right? It's it. Why are they singing a song that's on the radio? I don't know because it's on the radio. I love it, you, it, baby. It, 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 right. So it's you might as well ask, well, what's that song about? But you'll notice that that's never subjected to as much analysis. No one thinks at, about it. No one. No one thinks about it, and so. That's, I think, what the movie intends. And the intent did not reach certain audiences who wanted to be told how to feel about this war, right? That's what they're sitting there for. They They said, okay, now I sat through three hours. What's the answer to the test? Let me leave here and help me form an opinion or feeling. And this movie defies them and says there are no feelings and there are no opinions. There's just experiences. 
and they say, no, I don't I don't want that. And that's, I think, what led to the great critical backlash, both good and bad yeah. um, for for Chimino that led him. You know, he obviously he made in other films after that, uh, or at least one. Uh, and and he was a studio darling because the movie made a lot of money. But I don't think audience I think audiences were ready to hate him because of the the lack of payoff in this movie. Well, the payoff, I mean, it's funny you said like, because I think it's emotionally an unbelievable payoff. Like, but it's like you said before, you know, Michael and, you know, and Stan and John, and they're not op-ed writers, right? They're not going to go to the bar after Christopher Walken's funeral where they're all really, really upset. There's a great scene where he's, where John's trying to make the eggs and he just starts crying. Like, again, it's beyond words. Like he won't cry in front of them, right? So they sing together. We used to sing in this bar. And we're going to sing in this bar again. So you said it's a rhyming moment, but again, the, like the, they, they don't want to sit around that table now and talk about what this experience meant. They're going to raise a glass to Nikki and they're going to say, we're going to remember him. We're not going to forget him. And that's why it's even like a freeze frame, which is like an outdated way to end a film, right? They all kind of freeze with their, with their, and they hold up their, their glasses. And that's a really touching thing because like I said before, when they hear the piano, these people are capable of incredible deep emotion, but they don't they don't need to have a, a poli sci seminar at the end. The natural consequence of what happened to them and speechlessness is that there would no be no more singing in the bar. So the point is that they're singing in the bar, right? And everybody's saying, well, what does the song mean? Right? This is this. The song in the bar means they're singing in the bar. Right. And that's and that's what it means. So I'm with you on the emotional payoff of the movie because I think I let the movie tell me how it should be watched. Right. But I think if you go in with a counter explanation if you if you and I, i'm not knocking oliver stone but if you went to this movie like it was platoon right like how should i feel platoon will tell you how to feel but this is this is not platoon right? right this is not letters home to grandma this is real relationships that you've watched that have evolved in front of you and that have not been damaged the same way individuals have been damaged so if there's anything going on symbolically it's like what what are we capable of together as a unit that the individual is not capable of and what would happen if you really peeled off from the group, not took a break from the group for a hunting weekend, not took a break from the group because you weren't ready to face them. What if you said this experience has isolated me from the group such that I am one? Ultimately, you'd be destroyed. And if you right. stay within the group, they're singing. And that's the most you can get out of this. That's all there is. Like there's no more juice to wring out of that orange. That's the most comfort you can get. And I think a viewer you know, especially when the film first came out, a viewer can say, one one person sitting in the theater can say, how could these people sing God Bless America at the very end? And the person right next to him could say, how could they not? Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about The Deer Hunter. You can follow us on Twitter at 15MINFILM. You can also follow us where, Mike? Letterboxd. Follow us on Letterboxd. Let us know what to watch next. We take requests. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.